Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we critically analyze some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And this week is the seventh episode of our mini-series on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the prequel to The Hunger Games. This week we'll be talking about chapters 21, 22, and 23, starting out our coverage of part three, The Peacekeeper. Yeah. To remind everyone what we'll be talking about this week, Brittany has a short recap. Yeah, so these chapters open with Coriolanus traveling to District 12 to be a peacekeeper there. The chapters also give a glimpse into his conversation with Dean Highbottom and saying goodbye to Tigris and his grandmam. Once he gets to the base, he gets so depressed that he thinks about suicide. And just then, Sejanus arrives and Snow is actually happy to see him and receive his academy diploma. They soon have to attend an execution of a District 12 man, which is disturbing to both Snow and Sejanus, but Snow seems more disturbed by the Mockingjays than the actual execution. Mm -hmm. The dormmates then go to the Hob and see a music show by Lucy Gray and the Covey. The chapters end with Lucy Gray singing a song that she sang in the Capitol Zoo. But the reunion ends up getting interrupted by her ex and the mayor's daughter coming in. Yeah, so much drama, especially there at the end. I just wanted to to keep reading, but but we'll focus focus for now on these three chapters and can't wait to to get to next week's episode, I guess. (laughs) Yes. So before we move into our first impressions, we want to read a quote when they're going to the hanging tree and Snow is looking at the people who live in District 12. It frightened Coriolanus, this level of want. He'd been broke most of his life, but the Snows had always worked hard to maintain decency. These people had given up, and some part of him blamed them for their plight. He shook his head. We pour so much money into the districts, he said. It must be true. People always complained about it in the capital. We pour money into our industries, not into the districts themselves, said Sejanus. The people are on their own. Yes, so good. Such a juicy quote. (laughs) I know. Ew, but also the word (laughs) juicy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I really, I bracketed this section because it it was just so well written and reminds me so much of people's attitudes towards those who are unsheltered and have to live on the streets or those who need public assistance. Yeah, people blame them when the the vast majority of the time it's institutional racism, ableism, classism that creates the cycles of poverty that most people just can't get out of. Mm-hmm. And having just such a privileged attitude towards it, it's like, oh, well, we struggled, but we were able to maintain decency. They're just giving up. Uh, mm-hmm. When he has no idea what any of their lives are like. He he just got there and this is the first time he's seeing anyone, yet he's already making a judgment. Yeah, and, and I mean, especially once we see 12 in Katniss's time and we see how poor they are, but how much they're fighting, how much they're struggling to survive. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a really, really good point. And I also love the fact that he says, it must be true. People always complain about it in the Capitol, <laughs> right? So good, yes. So clearly based off of assumptions. <laughs> and that's so true with our world too, where people assume that because they were able to make it, 
that others should have had the exact same experiences. And that's just not the case, particularly, as you said, when it comes to ideas of structural racism and all these other kinds of oppression. Yeah, it was also reminding me of global attitudes as well. Mm. The fact that so many people in the U.S. think that too much of the federal budget is sent to U.N. agencies when it's actually less than 1% of the budget. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for, you know, those who are anti-immigrant or anti-refugee there's this attitude that those people shouldn't be using up any of the social services that American citizens should get access to. Mm -hmm. And all of those attitudes just completely ignore the fact that the U.S. has caused or at least significantly contributed to the poverty and instability of these, you know, other countries. Yet they blame those who are suffering because of it. It's easier to blame them than actually look at what structures you're a part of that are oppressing others mm -hmm. but i love how sejanus growing up in district two can bring a much more accurate perspective and you know that's what's always needed for those who are privileged to possibly be able to begin to understand a different perspective you have to have somebody who comes from a different set of experiences to call that out mm -hmm. and Yes, the Snows did experience severe hunger during the war, but in the capital, they were still privileged. They had connections to basically be able to hoard lima beans. Mm -hmm. They had a big house with things that they could actually burn to keep a fire going. You know, they were still able to go to a prestigious school. So even despite some of the, the struggles that they had, which were real, they still have a much more privileged position than any of these other people in, in District 12 did. Absolutely. And and in the past, you've brought up the idea of ethnocentrism too, and Snow's doing that again here, where he's saying that the Snow's always worked hard to maintain decency because they value decency in a way that perhaps people in the districts don't value it. And it's such a demand for his culture to be the objectively correct culture. Because apparently judging other people who are stuck in cycles of poverty still counts as decency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just such a great showing of the difference between Sejanus and Snow. Well, we should probably move into our analysis proper with our first impressions. What first impressions did you have? It was interesting starting to read these chapters because... I'm a pacifist, which I've mentioned before, and, and a feminist, which is probably abundantly clear by this point. <laughs> and so because of those things, I'm also anti-militaristic with the military's hyper-toxically masculine culture and its obvious identity in weapons and warfare. So honestly, I wasn't as enthralled by these chapters as the ones that have come before. But also, I, I do recognize that chapters 21 and 22 were really about setting the scene. Mm. So, I, I mean, this is Suzanne Collins. I'm pretty sure that it's going to get more interesting as uh, the <laughs> segment goes on. And when <laughs> when Sejanus showed up, a part of me was like, no, like, don't join the military. Mm. <laughs> but then another part was like, yes, I need more of you. <laughs> you're like, you just have too much of snow. It's It's hard to remain enjoying the, the book. 
Absolutely. <laughs> you need uh, Sejanus to cut through some of his wrong thought processes. Mm-hmm. I also, it struck me that Coriolanus was actually honest with Sejanus, admitting that he was thinking about killing himself. Hmm. So yeah, I guess I'm kind of wondering if any real friendship is going to form between them in, I don't know, maybe a way that's strangely more about closeness than authenticity, if that makes any sense. <laughs> because yeah. obviously Coriolanus is still a butt and still thinks snide things about Sejanus. But yeah, just that, that moment of honesty was striking. I mean, and that he was so happy to see him and jumped off his bunk and gave him a hug. Yeah, that, that idea of friendship, I think, is something that really called out to me throughout these chapters. We see Sejanus as such a good friend here, where mm-hmm. though he may not be Snow's friend, really, he is a friend to him. He's a friend for his part, as Frodo would say. <laughs> exactly. And Immediately when he shows up, he is kind. He just shows this real friendship and this real caring for for other people that I think is really interesting, particularly when you see it in juxtaposition to the story that Highbottom shared about Snow's father, how the Dean realized that he was only really a friend of Snow Sr. when he could be used. Mm -hmm. And that so exemplifies Coriolanus's relationships with people, particularly with Sejanus. So yeah, I think that it's it's a really interesting perspective to kind of see these relationships and see what a real friendship looks like. And, and I think you bring up a really interesting question of whether that can develop further into a more authentic friendship. It's also kind of interesting, though, because I think Snow acts like a friend to Sejanus in hmm. many ways, but he doesn't think like a friend towards Sejanus. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that continues or if it morphs. Yeah. Once it, it actually costs him to do so, will he will he continue? I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. <laughs> Did you have, uh, well, the one last thing. I just love the line. We don't charge for tickets because sometimes hungry people need music the most. Oh, so good. I know. I don't really have much to discuss there because it's just so great all on its own. I don't need to say anything more, but Were you impressed? Was I impressed? Yeah, during our first impressions. Oh, (laughs) yes, I was, Chris. (laughs) Thanks for forcing the pun. You're welcome. (laughs) But what about you? What were some of your first impressions? I think the other thing that really came up to me was... Early on, before Snow even leaves the capital, Tigris mentions the Hunger Games are sick. She says, how could a good person like Coriolanus be expected to go along with them? Which made me snort. And <laughs> I, wrote, I think I wrote some snide comment on my margin as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it also made me think about how society goes along with oppression and how the Hunger Games are built for creating a situation where the capital citizens would go along with this kind of oppression, where even those who are good people like Lysistrata might go along with it 
because it's being normalized in certain ways and adding entertainment value and providing things to the community. And I think that's in many ways how we see that in our world as well, where we go along with today, say, our rampant consumerism that disadvantages and creates slave-like conditions for people in other countries. Hmm. And even if we personally might feel like there's guilt involved, there's no real change in people going out and buying iPhones and doing these other Mm -hmm. things that are helping to maintain this oppression. So I think that we see this really interesting view of, sure, Snow isn't necessarily the good person who would go against the Hunger Games, but those who are, are also going along with it. And I think that that was one of the really great lessons of this book so far, Mm. is seeing how that was created and so that just that that quote really stuck out to me yeah it's it's interesting that something can stand out to you as wrong but not you personally yeah people in general hey Um, i'm i'm an american i'm as guilty as as i mean not as guilty but i am guilty along with other americans it's true but the that people can know that something is wrong, acknowledge that something is wrong, but how much are they willing to be inconvenienced or how Mm -hmm. much are they willing to make sacrifices to not participate or to try to dismantle it? Thus far, Sejanus is the only one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it does make me wonder about Tigress because she's saying these things and we know that she was a stylist in the games and we Mm -hmm. know that She did do a lot of physical alterations to herself, but she also was the only person that they went to when they needed some place to hide. They're like, is there anybody in this main town center in the capital that would be on our side or that would keep this secret? And since people who were a part of the resistance in the the capital knew of her i wonder if she was like a sinna until snow kicked her out of that role i I don't know but i could definitely see it because they knew or they at least were pretty sure that they could trust her so she had to do some things to to garner that yeah well we should probably move into our next segment our touch points where we see our world reflected through what we're reading about in the book. What was one of your touch points? Yeah, so kind of going along with what we were just talking about with consumerism and whatnot, I thought it was really interesting when he was on the train going to District 12, and he's looking out of the window at the destitute cities as they pass by and wonders what the world would have been like when they'd all been in their glory. Hmm. Back when this had been North America, not Pan Am, it must have been fine. A land full of capitals. And this just reminds me that, yes, despite all of the poverty and inequality we have here in the United States, which is significant, we are, as the U.S., are still the capital compared to so much of the rest of the world. And oftentimes that, that can get lost. It really reminded me of when I went to Peru when I was 18 and was able to accompany these two doctors who once or twice a month would take a 45-minute van ride through part of the Amazon rainforest and then another 45-minute boat ride. And and this was, 
it is important to note that this was a boat that did leak and they had a bucket that had to like pour out some of the water so it wouldn't sink. They had to spend all that time traveling to get to this village that had no electricity and when they would come there would be a line out the door so that they could be seen by doctors. Hmm. And right before we left, a kid actually sliced his foot open on a piece of broken glass. And they had to sew him up with no anesthetic. Hmm. And, like, multiple people had to, like, hold him down. If this had happened even an hour later, he wouldn't have gotten any medical attention for two to four weeks. Hmm. Which obviously could have led to amputation, death, all sorts of things. I remember that moment just being such a significant transformative moment in my life, just realizing how much privilege that the U.S. does have, just the access we have to so many different things. And so, yeah, the U.S. towns and cities are still, in a lot of ways, very much little capitals. Absolutely. Yeah, that was really making explicit what Collins is trying to do here in shining a light on the way that we treat people and the exploitative economy that we are a part of, this capitalist Mm -hmm. economy that drives our nation. And I think that her including after that Snow saying, what a waste that all these capitals are now gone, these mini Mm -hmm. capitals, shows that, yeah, to someone like Snow, this empire of capitalism is the height of what could be accomplished and it's a waste that it is no longer and yeah i think that that's that's pretty clear what she's trying to say and and you you stole my first point (laughs) oh sorry but also i love that it's kind of a pun too because it's like to have these capitals there has to be so much waste Mm. which the united states is the king of totally Well, one thing I thought was particularly interesting, you know, I I was reading a lot into peacekeepers. I thought that one thing in particular was interesting was how Bug and Smiley were talking about how they were district and that that surprised Snow, Mm -hmm. but that they were not allowed to police their own districts. And that reminded me of essentially what's happening right now, where one of the problems with police brutality, and there are many. But one of them has been that historically, police who are assigned to, in particular, low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color are not from those neighborhoods. Mm. That means that they are more likely to use force and more likely to other the people who are living there because they're not that community. And we see that as a tactic so useful that the capital utilizes it well because If you are from District 12, you are not going to brutalize the people of District 12 in the way that the peacekeepers are meant to. Definitely. So, yeah, I think that was one of the many interesting things that came up uh, in regards to the peacekeepers. But what what, what else were you thinking? Yeah, so also when snow's on the train. I don't know why so much is coming up from when snow is on the train, which is literally just a couple (laughs) pages. But... He's thinking about how ugly District 9 is mm-hmm. and from what he's seen of TV coverage of District 12, he's expecting it to be uglier and he was thinking about how it didn't look fit for human habitation mm. and, you know, this is because the district mines coal so the capital has no interest in investing in the land and the environment because... District 12 doesn't seem to have any legal rights to be able to develop it themselves. 
and definitely no capital to be able to do that even if they're allowed to so it all remains impoverished and dusty and gray and this just kind of made me think about some native american reservations Hmm. and how a lot of the land quality is you know actually kind of mid-range but there's no outside investment in it and the poverty levels within often preclude the cultivation that would be necessary for it to thrive and so it just degrades over time yeah that's a really good point we're from la and we can be snooty sometimes too because <laughs> i've literally had thoughts like that when i've driven in other areas i'm like oh this place is so ugly <laughs> like why is this everything brownie here and yeah it's it's easy to think those things without looking at what's contributing to them being that way absolutely and i think ellie's a really good example too of the opposite where why we look the way we look is because of the massive investment put into it. Not to mention the imperial designs on the location from the Spanish and then the Americans, but... And, you know, taking water from other places. Exactly. And certainly, District 12, maybe if they had the same kind of investment, they'd get the same type of beautiful environment. But as Sejanus notes, that's not the kind of investment that's being put there. Yep, yep. And the last thing I was kind of thinking about was one of the songs that Lucy Grace sings. The one that was saying, my heart comes a-crawling back to you. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was such a striking example of people who are in abusive relationships. Mm. The violent words that were used in it, like shattered, battered, etc., were very vivid and... It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Lucy Gray and her ex, with Lucy Gray and Snow, and maybe it won't go there, but I, I thought it was definitely an interesting song and message to have there. Yeah, absolutely. To continue on, on ideas of, of songs, actually, we're going to go back to our great segment of what Chris is learning in grad school. <laughs> because I learned this last semester, really interesting history of folk music, which this is clearly hearkening back to. They even specifically utilize Oh My Darling Clementine as one of the songs that the Covey sing. And Oh My Darling Clementine was one of the big 19th century hits and it was essentially one of the examples of Blackface Minstrel Street. That was the major pop cultural music of the, the century. Mm-hmm. This music that was typically performed by white working class people and utilizing lyrics exemplifying stereotypical what was seen as black speech. And Oh My Darling Clementine was itself basically a rewriting of a minstrel song called Down by the River Lived a Maiden. Uh, lived being L-I-V apostrophe D. So I think it's really interesting because historians have argued that blackface minstrelsy was certainly elements of stereotype and racism and all that was was involved there. But it was also a way for white working class, in particular immigrant communities, to address ideas and emotions of love, their experiences with loss, separation, their status, by looking at what they essentially saw as the lowest and most tragic members of society, those being enslaved and then freed African Americans. So I think it's really interesting to have 
members of the districts singing this type of music, which clearly is so emotional and so authentic to their experiences, where it comes from this history. And, and today, Oh My Darling Clementine is a song that's sung in elementary schools throughout the country. And we don't necessarily know that past. And so I'm, I'm not saying that, that the Covey themselves are, are participating in a kind of blackface practice, but I am thinking that it's interesting that this is what Collins chooses to represent their pain because it, it, it was such a powerful performance historically that it gained in so much popularity that we, we still know of it 150 years later and the Covey would know of it hundreds of years after that. Mm. And so I just think that that was a really interesting thing that, that got my historian mind kind of thinking a lot about what that type of representation means to the Covey and what it also means to have a white writer utilizing this in her own authorship. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I didn't know the backstory. But when I when I saw that song, I was like, there must be a reason it's this song, not mm. a different song, because I know the lyrics, I know the tune, but I didn't research it. I didn't do my quick Wikipedia search. <laughs> <laughs> but that is really interesting. What we do know in this, this scenario is that the Covey are particularly oppressed within District 12. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't consider themselves a part of it, and they were forced to stay there when they didn't want to. So they're up there singing, and there's all these other people who are a part of the district who can resonate with some of the the pain or, or sadness, like you were saying, but they don't understand the pain or sadness that the Covey experience, hmm. who are the ones that are singing it. And part of the whole concert is this, not necessarily exotification, but maybe, you know, for some of, hmm. for some of the people. So yeah, I, I don't know. There's just, there's just some interesting things going on there. With, no question. Yeah, with how much maybe the district feel like they relate to the Covey versus how much the Covey think the district can understand them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, did you have anything else you were thinking about? Yeah, the the last thing, just very briefly, that I want to talk about is the way that Snow and Sejanus and others are getting into the Peacekeepers, and that reminding me of the historical and present occurrence of people joining the military and joining police forces oftentimes out of either economic need and few other opportunities, and sometimes, especially historically, out of requirement, whether that's through something like the draft or through conscription, where people who are particularly criminals or who are impoverished had no other recourse other than to give labor sometimes, but often to serve in a military or in a militia. And I think it's interesting seeing that that happening here and this idea of a 20-year conscription is yeah. so fascinating. Certainly, our, our nation was built on the backs of not only enslaved African labor, but all sorts of other kinds of unfreedoms that often were caused by poverty or other types of oppressions. And people had no other recourse other than to to give their labor as, as a commodity in and of itself, uh, whether that be military or otherwise. So just, yeah, something that, that I think is an interesting framing for the peacekeepers and Snow's experience within it. And frankly, 
even today in the United States, we still have slavery legalized as long as it's for someone who's incarcerated. The 13th Amendment, which remains on the books and which is lauded as what freed the slaves, also had a loophole that said that that slavery is not allowed in the United States unless it's as punishment for a crime. And that continues to today with many incarcerated people working for pennies on the dollar um, with, again, no other recourse. And how often that's affecting impoverished communities and communities of color is is clear. A good example of this is you can watch Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th, which is all about mass incarceration and deals with this starting with the 13th Amendment. And, and that is on Netflix and I think on YouTube right now as well. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fascinating and horrifying. Absolutely. But... We should probably move into our next segment, which is Back to the Future. This is when we look at what we're reading in The Ballad of Songbird and Snakes through the prism of the original Hunger Games books. Yeah, so kind of quickly, I was thinking about in our death in the Hunger Games episode that we did a while back. A great episode. (laughs) You should really go back and listen to it. (laughs) Yes. I had mentioned that although suicide is definitely such a tragic thing I felt that it was a bit too missing from the trilogy because Mm. I would think that it would be fairly common considering the trauma people go through in Panem and the intense depression that millions of people must feel there Mm -hmm. and so I just I appreciated that Snow was actually thinking about it and thinking, you know, there's no way out, nowhere to run, no hope of rescue, no future that was not a living death. And that Sejanus mentioned in in passing that he was seriously planning his own as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just appreciated that conversation that they had. And even though it was just small, I, I thought that it really did flush out the world of Benem and and their characters specifically felt a little bit more real to me because in in the original trilogy, I think the only person we really see some of those thoughts be more active in is Katniss when hmm. she plans to just stop eating and wants to just wither away. But yeah, seeing this here, I think, um, helps make the the world a little more nuanced like the world we live in. Totally. And the other thing that I was thinking about is when the Mockingjays start picking up the whale Lil made when Arlo was hanged. That reminded me of the Mockingjays in the Quarter Quell arena that took the voices of Prim and Gail and Annie crying out in pain. Hmm. It was just so interesting that Lucy Gray said that Mockingjays were the bona fide bird and bona fide meaning without deception or fraud. And it just made me return to that wondering if the Capitol had tortured and recorded the voices of Prim, Gail, and Annie. Mm. Which, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting because that use in the arena was a deception of sorts Mm. because it made them think that their loved ones were there, first of all, and that deception was used for psychological torture. And also there's the, the other view, which is that those cries were created using technology, which from a different point of view would be without deception because after all those 
in power will use whatever means they have at their disposal to psychologically coerce compliance you know giving horror show entertainment to the capital is like a side bonus so yeah i just i found it interesting an idea of like deception the the jabber jays started out as something that the districts were able to turn into a weapon against the capital through deception. And so it's it's just such an interesting way for Lucy Gray to talk about the Mockingjays. Yeah, that's a it's an interesting phrasing for such a nuanced being in the in this world of, of the Mockingjays. Yeah, yeah. I also thought it was interesting that Snow immediately disliked the Mockingjays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'd be a big fan of them in that instance either. Certainly, they they have a lot of capacity to do some, some messed up psychological things. Absolutely. But what about you? What were you thinking about for Back to the Future? Yeah, I, I had a, a couple. One very quickly was we see the hanging tree. Mm-hmm. We see how pre- District 12 having gallows, they had a hanging tree. And so it makes sense why the song that we hear Katniss sing would exist within 12. And hanging a man, they say, who killed three. Mm. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> the other thing I thought was, was really interesting was when Snow mentions when he is coming into the peacekeepers, when he's basically being brought into the military, he's shorn, costumed, and vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And it's written in this kind of dehumanizing way where he loses his identity and his humanity in these ways. Yeah, I totally underline that too. <laughs> and I think it's a really interesting parallel to how the tributes and victors in the Hunger Games are treated by Katniss's time. We see them given costumes and we see them shorn. Katniss has her body hair plucked out and not I mean, vaccinated. I, I don't know if plucked, but waxed out, definitely. Waxed out, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that would take a really long time. But but she's shorn in a way, that way. And then he says vaccinated and Katniss and PETA, at least as victors, get these medical procedures that they never consented to, you know, healing her hearing and his leg and all these other things, which I'm sure they would appreciate, but they never gave consent to, and they don't really have the ability to give consent. And so I think it's an interesting view of the Hunger Games almost in reverse, where he is uniformed into a visible representation of the capital that is meant to blend in with these other peacekeepers, where they are together this show of force that is uniform and faceless, whereas the tributes and victors are given personality through their costuming and Mm. given this unhuman representation of beauty that isn't of itself dehumanizing, but in a very, very different way. While there still remains a semblance of uniformity just due to the fact that they have to be costumed according to their district, so they're still representing something. They're not individuals. They're still dehumanized, but mm-hmm. just in this this interesting parallel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah, so I guess we should move on to our ruminations. Yeah, let's do it. So what are you ruminating on? What's, what's in, on your mind as you move forward? So I'm kind of wondering if Snow's time in the military is going to actually encourage and develop the more brutal sides of him. 
Hmm. Like the cold way that he can think about humans, what he considers necessary to keep this so-called peace. For example, I think it's interesting that as soon as he gets a gun and finds the Mockingjays disturbing, he thinks about using the gun, Hmm. you know, to do target practice on them. That's just such an intense thing to think. Like, even if you don't like these birds, because, yeah, they're kind of creepy when they're, like, doing these wails of sorrow. But to just be like, oh, and we should use them as target practice. Yeah, like, I'm just interested in what things he's going to find appealing about his time as a peacekeeper. I mean, they, they mentioned, like, a handbook of peacekeeper values and traditions. I'm like, I really want to read that. I'm sure it'd be really disturbing. But what about this culture is going to, he's going to take with him and, and implement into his penem? Yeah, that's fascinating. And the military does have such a strong socializing power. Oh, definitely. I think that it will be a missed opportunity if we don't see that affecting Snow in really interesting ways. Absolutely. I mean, when he has the gun, you know, first he's like, uh, why am I given one of these? Like, we barely even (laughs) practice. And next to that in my margin, I wrote hashtag USA. Mm -hmm. But then... As soon as he was there at the hanging, there's this crowd of district people around him. He's like thankful that he has it because it makes him feel more secure. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But, you know, it's also interesting because most of his, you know, friends, if if he actually makes real friends, they'll be people who aren't from the capital. Mm. But, you know, obviously the peacekeepers, as we were saying, have a culture of their own. So, you know, I'm not sure how much of that will cut through that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just really interested on how the military will influence his character development uh, during this book and, and obviously well past it. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about something similar, but more focused on Sejanus. And mm. going back to your comments about pacifism and Sejanus seemingly trying to live a life that is as peaceful as possible. I'm wondering how much can pacifism and elite status and power intertwine, mm-hmm. especially in a world like Panem, because his elite status in and of itself comes from war, where his family gets money based off of war profiteers, and he goes into the military wanting to be a medic. But even that position is within a violent institution. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's interesting seeing how Sejanus is constantly questioning what he's doing. And I can understand why he might, seeing as how the only opportunities that seem to be afforded to him are ones where he is still engaged in some sort of elitism and power and power that is managed through violence. So I'm interested in seeing if there will be more negotiation of what it means to be peace-loving and pacifistic when you are so heavily ingrained in these violent institutions. Definitely. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why it's like when he showed up, I'm like, no, run the other way. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, he didn't actually have a choice. Yeah. Unless, I suppose, incarceration. And we don't know what that looks like in the capital, really. But I'm sure it's not great. Uh, I mean, I don't even know that there is incarceration. It seemed like maybe Avox is the other option. Oh, good point. Yeah. Talk about enslavement and, and forced labor. 
Right. Huh. But yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know what's, what is, is going to do to him. I don't know if he's going to leave some of his pacifism mm. behind. If he sees that maybe there's a violent way to overthrow certain things. Or if, you know, it's obviously super dangerous to have somebody who has severe depressive episodes to have access to weapons. So, hmm. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm scared because <laughs> I love him and I don't want <laughs> him to turn violent. I don't want him to turn violent against himself. I, you know, uh, he's going to die. I want him to die as himself, you know, but that's, that's not always how it works in real life. So yeah, or <sighs> fiction, which is what we're reading. I mean, sure. I suppose. <laughs> you don't know. Are you in North America a couple hundred years from now? <laughs> I'm not. Maybe this is exactly what it'll look like. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, the other thing that I just really want to know more about is the Covey and to mm. see their interactions uh, between each other, too, like within their own group. Um, well, will be really fascinating. You know, most of their last names, or if their last names or middle names, I'm not exactly sure, but um, we're all different, like, colors. And so, yeah, I'm just, there. there's so much I want to know. So that'll be totally. really interesting moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got seven more chapters. So next week, what will we be discussing? So next week, we are going to be reading chapters 24, 25, and 26. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on social media by searching for Geek Between the Lines. I also highly encourage you to join us on Patreon, where you can join in with our book club discussions. And to keep the episodes shorter, I've been taking some of our outtakes of extra conversations or expanded conversations from the episodes and putting them on there. So you get access to all of that too. So even if you're coming to these episodes a little later, that is still there for you. And that's all at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines. We'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out! out.